Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and resulting in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, good morning. Welcome to 2024. Yeah. Just want to take a moment before I lead us in a time of corporate prayer to express my gratitude uh, to you as a congregation, uh, to our elders, to our staff, uh, to our membership, uh, for the ways in which you guys gave uh, freedom uh, for me to rest over the course of these last three and a half months. I told a number of you uh, that the first month was really challenging, shutting my mind off of all the things that kept racing. But the last couple of months of that were very restful, uh, very re-energizing to me personally and, and pastorally. Uh, had a chance to visit many churches in our area where I have friends who pastor uh, and just sit under the teaching of the word and the singing of the saints along with them. Uh, it was just a blessing for me, for my family uh, as well, and so I just want to express my gratitude to you uh, for the space that you gave uh, to, to recharge. I said when I left that sabbaticals are extended seasons of rest for future fruitfulness, and I, I believe that coming back in that the Lord has some fruitfulness for us, um, some seeds that are going to be planted and watered and harvested over the course of the years to come. And so I'm very grateful, very grateful for that season of rest. I also share with some of you the last several weeks I began to grow restless, like ready to get back engaged and involved in something. Um, and so I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to be back and looking forward to what the Lord has in store for the future of our church as we move forward together. Uh, but this morning as we pray together, I want to turn your attention to a passage of Scripture in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing uh, about uh, all of his resume that he has jettisoned, all the things that he could hold up before God and say, God, here are right, all the reasons why I should be acceptable to you. And Paul says, all of those things I've thrown into the dumpster. And listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3 on the heels of that. In verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6 he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says this, I throw all this away, he says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or already am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, Jesus has grabbed a hold of me, and so I want to hold hard to him, hold fast to him, and cling to him, and know him more deeply than I do today. 
Listen, as we move into a new year, I know many of us have lots of things that are percolating in our minds, things that we want to grow in, right? I was talking to somebody this morning, and, uh, you know, everyone wants to learn to eat healthy in 2024. Everyone wants to learn to save and invest well in 2024. We all have mile markers, goals, standards which we want to accrue, but I want to just put this before you this morning. That as believers in Christ, may we make it our highest ambition in 2024 to know Him. And the power of His resurrection at work in our lives and through our church. But if that's to be the case, Paul says, we must share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. It's funny, it sounds eerily similar to what Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For to die is to live. But if you hang on to your life for your own, you know what you do? You forfeit it and you lose it. May our highest ambition this year be to know Christ. I don't know what that's going to mean for us as a church, but I look forward to seeing how God deepens our dependence upon him in the year to come. So as we pray together this morning, would you just pray for that one thing? That God would make it your ambition in 2024 to know Christ more deeply this year than you knew Him last year. And not just intellectually, but experientially in your life as you walk with Him. And that you would indeed die to those things which need to be died to. That you might see life arise more fully and freely on account of it. Would you make that your prayer this morning? God, would you, would you make it my ambition to know your son by the power of your spirit in the year to come? I'm gonna give you some space to pray that and then we'll close our time and open the scriptures together. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess that there are dozens of things perhaps on the dashboard of our lives vying for our attention in this year to come. But may there be one thing that supersedes them all. And may that be a desire to know and be conformed to the image of your Son through our experience with Him in the year to come. May your Holy Spirit help us to see that everything which we once may have held up to you to say, these are the reasons you should accept me, those things are garbage.
that our bank account doesn't make us acceptable to you. That our standard of living doesn't make us acceptable to you. That our eating habits don't make us acceptable to you. But only Christ makes us acceptable in your sight. And may our great ambition this year be to know him more fully and deeply than we ever have before, experientially. May your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead, bring resurrection power in our lives and through our church as we die to ourselves, as we share in the sufferings of Christ, as we consider the reproach of Christ, our, our joy to be named with Him in the year to come. And we anticipate and expect to see how you will work through those things. It's an exciting time to be your church in this community. And Father, I pray that we would never lose sight of what is most important. Not in our individual lives and not in our corporate life. That we may know Him who has taken hold of us and we would hold fast to Him to know Him more deeply. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us this morning, uh, there may be a guest card like this somewhere around where you are seated. On one side of that card is a place for prayer requests. We pray together every Sunday in our service, and we would love to pray for you. If there are things we can pray for you about, we'd love to hear from you. There's also a place for information about your family. If you'd love information, it's like some information about us, some questions you'd like answered, we'd love to answer those for you. If you fill out one of these cards, there's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. Drop it there on your way out, and we'd love to connect with you. At this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids Right, our primary kids first, right? So kinder and first grade, right? Back here, Miss Rachel and Miss Kimberly, they're gonna take you to your classroom down the hall. Let those young ones go first. And then next, we'll go ahead and dismiss our grade school class to the McCabe's. They're in the back of the room as well in the blue Redeemer Kids shirts. All right, you can follow them down the hall in some sense of an orderly fashion as you're dismissed. If you've got a Bible and you're staying in here with us today, I invite you to open to Psalm 42 with me. We're going to read Psalm 42 and 43 together this morning as we consider what they have to say to us as we move into this new year. Psalm 42 begins in verse 1. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. Feel free. Psalm 42, verse 1. The psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude of keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. 
My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. Against an ungodly people, from deceitful and unjust men, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Listen, there was a hope train rolling here last fall. I didn't want to miss out on that train. So to come in, back into ministry here with you this morning, I thought the first sermon that I preach might just continue that train, be the caboose, okay, if you want to think of it that way. But listen, sometimes in poetry, and we recognize this in our modern time, most often through song, right? Sometimes poetry can capture the story of a person's life with such vivid language that you can imagine yourself in the words. You can see your life on the printed page. Charles Spurgeon said this of Psalm 42 and 43. It's the cry of a man far removed from the outward ordinances and worship of God sighing for the long-loved house of his God. And at the same time, it's the voice of a spiritual believer under depressions, longing for the renewal of the divine presence, struggling with doubts and fears, but yet holding his ground by faith in the living God. And then he says, most of the Lord's family have sailed on the sea, which is here so graphically described. Now, many reputable scholars and pastors believe these psalms were written by David as he fled from Absalom. Spurgeon again says, although David is not mentioned as the author, the psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It is so Davidic, it smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the marks of his style and experience in every letter. I'm not as certain as Spurgeon was, but if it is written by David and perhaps taken up by the sons of Korah, who were the temple musicians, then it's likely that it found its way onto the lips and into the lives of the people of Israel during their exile from the land. And it's likely that it's found its way into the lives and onto the lips of every saint henceforth who sailed on the same seas that Spurgeon references. See, the author describes the situation as one where he's cut off from the worship of God, cut off from the people of God, cut off from the place where God dwelt, which for David would have been the tabernacle, and for the people of Israel in their exile would have been the temple there in Jerusalem. 
In addition, he's surrounded by enemies and those who oppress him and who taunt him day after day, saying, where is your God? In other words, if your God really was as big, if your God really was as strong, if your God really was as mighty, if there really was nothing your God could not do for you, as the song says, then all these things would not be happening. Your sea would be much calmer and your sail would be much smoother. He describes the words of his enemies like deadly wounds in his bones, causing his tears to be like his food as they roll down his cheeks into his mouth day and night. He has a sense that he's under God's judgment as the breakers and the waves of God crash upon him. And although he's trusted in God as his rock, he feels as if he's drowning beneath a waterfall. And that God has at best forgotten him, even worse, rejected him and his petitions. And this entire situation has brought about massive confusion and perhaps even some doubt as to God's goodness and his love and his compassion and his faithfulness. Now in the heading above Psalm 42, in many of our translations, we read that this psalm is designated as a masculine. A masculine, that word in Hebrew, it literally is translated prudent or insight or contemplation. In other words, this psalm was meant to be instructive. Even though it reveals the very real and raw emotions and experiences of the psalmist, there's something we're supposed to learn from it. There's some instruction we are to receive from it, some lesson for the people of God in every generation. There's a pattern that's to be taken up in response to our own turmoil and our own downcast souls. Now listen, our experience with the sea of doubt, depressions, and fears are not likely caused by the exact same situations that the psalmist is in. We recognize that. Because we're not living in a country that has a covenant relationship with God but has been overthrown by a military force and carried away into exile. But we are, as the people of God, living in exile, as Peter will say in the New Testament, as those who belong to a heavenly kingdom scattered among the kingdoms of this earth. And as exilic people, the church We do face hardships and trials in this life. I would imagine that most of us don't have a grown son who's trying to kill us and take our place on the throne. If you do, you might want to call the cops. (laughs) But we do have an enemy. He's seeking to kill and to steal and destroy our faith through whatever means and measures he deems to be necessary. So while we recognize that our outward experiences and circumstances are not the same as the author's, it is true that our outward circumstances are often the occasion which causes us to feel tossed about on that same sea. It could be vocational storms, relational storms, familial or personal circumstances. It could be the loss of a job, the waywardness of a child, the death of a loved one, the abandonment of a spouse, a debilitating diagnosis or persecution for our faith, which can cause us to say, all your waves and breakers have passed over me, or why have you forgotten me? 
Listen, in addition to the circumstances around us, the insecurities within us at times can cause us to feel tossed about on that same sea. Something I've learned a lot about over the last several years, and in particularly over the last three and a half months, is shame. Inward shame. And there's a healthy sense of shame that we ought to have whenever we sin and disobey God. But listen, there is an unhealthy shame that resides in our souls at times that continues to whisper to us in our ear, you will never be enough. You will never amount to anything. And that can cause you to do some crazy things. It can cause you to drift away into a fantasy world where you're a brave warrior or a great lover on the other side of a computer screen. Shame can cause you to try to prove that you're enough by spending more than you earn to prove to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, and most of all to yourself that you are not the loser that you assume everyone else thinks that you are because shame is telling you that story in your mind. Shame can cause you to invest inordinate amounts of time on the vain pursuit of perfection, either professionally or physically. Shame can lead you to interpret positive things as neutral things, neutral things as negative things, and negative things as soul-crushing things in your life and lead you to a place where you would say that your tears have been your food day and night. See, our sea of doubts, depressions, and fears are often caused by storms that rage around us or storms that rage within us. And so this morning, this morning, I want to take a look at these two psalms, which are actually one psalm in the Hebrew text, and consider what they have to say to us about retaining hope in the midst of turmoil. Retaining hope in the midst of depression and what I would call anxiety. And if you want to navigate that sea well in the coming year and retain hope, no matter what kind of turmoil you might find yourself in, listen, the first thing we have to learn to do, which I believe is the pattern that the psalm sets out for us, is this. You've got to learn to preach to yourself. Now, listen, some of you might be thinking, he's gone mad. Right? He has lost his mind over the last three and a half months. That dude is crazy. He's telling me I have to talk to myself. It's exactly what I'm telling you to do. It's okay if you talk to yourself as long as you don't answer yourself in a different voice. <laughs> That's when it becomes very concerning. Now let me show you this from the text. When taken together, these two psalms can be divided into three sections. With each of them climaxing with the author arguing with his own soul. And a good sermon, listen, it's, 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 among other things, it's an argument. It's trying to persuade people of something. It's not just giving them information, but it's trying to persuade them to take action. And on three separate occasions in the text, in 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5, the author asks his own soul the exact same question, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? It's like he seems to rise and fall on the waves of the sea. It's like he rises at this point of, of arguing with his soul and back down into the dip of the depression then rises again saying, why are you downcast? Give me the reasons. Give me some bullet points. Give me an explanation for the reason, for the, for the way that you feel. 
and then he sinks back down. It's like he's riding the waves like most of us are accustomed to doing in our own lives. Now, it's important that we take a look at this expression because the words on paper can seem a little sterile to us. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? They can seem sterile when written, when read from the printed page. But for those who have walked that journey, we recognize those words are not sterile. They are infectious. They are infectious in our lives. Listen, the verbs cast down and in turmoil, they're both in the imperfect tense in Hebrew. Now you're like, what in the world does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means this, that the actions they describe are not completed actions. They are ongoing actions, perpetual actions. They are in a state of type actions. This means that these actions, the author is asking his soul when he's speaking to himself, he says, why are you in this ongoing state of being cast down? Why are you in this ongoing state of being in turmoil? Now the word for cast down literally means to despair. And to be in a place of despair is to be in a position where you're prone to give up hope. You're in the dark and there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And you're walking through the darkness. You're laid low. You're prostrate down on the ground. That's what the word literally means. Down on the ground, in the dust. And you don't have the energy or the strength or the wherewithal to pick yourself up off of the ground. And the author is asking himself, why are you in this ongoing state of darkness and hopelessness? Why are you perpetually cast down and depressed? Now, if that were not enough, the word for in turmoil literally means to roar. Literally means to roar. See, to be in turmoil is the experience of having your soul in an uproar. It's like really, really loud inside. The volume is so high that you can't really hear anything other than the despair that you feel, and you cannot find the remote to turn it down. It's as loud as a clap of thunder, like when the lightning strikes across the street from your home, and it's so close that the percussive force of the thunder rattles your windows, and it shakes your house. You hear everything shaking. That's what it is to be in turmoil. The word's also used in places to describe the howling or growling of wild dogs or other animals. So to be in turmoil at times feels like there's a pack of wild dogs or wolves breathing down your neck, growling and howling. Your heart is beating wildly and everything is so turbulent and loud inside that you're in this perpetual state of seasickness. That's what it is to be in turmoil. And the author asks himself, why are you in this constant uproar? Why is the volume so loud? Why is your heart racing wildly like you're fleeing from a path of hungry wolves why are you filled with that kind of worry and anxiety the author is arguing with himself demanding reasons for the way he feels and here they are separated from God the presence of God separated from the people of God separated from the corporate worship of God attacked and mocked by enemies who sow doubt and deceit feeling under God's judgment, forgotten and rejected. These are not some imaginary reasons. 
It's not like he's just like, oh, just buck up, brother. These are very real and complex situations that the author's facing. Now look, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express one time. <laughs> but I do know depression and anxiety because I've lived with it since I was a teenager. And I know because of my experience that this description that the author gives is spot on when it comes to circumstantial or clinical depression and anxiety. I've been on antidepressants for the last six years, and I imagine I needed them long before that. And I imagine I will need them the rest of my life to regulate my brain chemistry. And those who've walked through this same tunnel know the experience. It feels as if you're walking perpetually in a position of no hope, no light, eating dust, and without the energy to get up in the morning at times. Your soul is roaring and raging, and you cannot turn the volume down. You feel like you're about to be torn to shreds. Now, for some of you, I just walked into your living room. Because that's been your experience as well. I think oftentimes, though, in church, we're too afraid to admit that. I mean, imagine what people might say or think if you actually (laughs) admitted that you wrestled with depression to the point of despair and hopelessness at times. Imagine what people would think if you ever said, hey, my anxiety feels like a pack of hungry wolves are chasing me through the forest. Imagine what people might think or say if you actually admitted that the volume in your soul was so deafening that you felt like you were drowning beneath a waterfall. Because that's what the psalmist says. That's what he's saying. What would people think and say? I mean, we're Christians, right? On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. To that, I would say a hearty amen. But I'll tell you something. Sometimes my standing feels like feeble, shaky knees under the weight of depression and anxiety. Doesn't feel like this victorious standing. I've sailed this sea most of my life. And when I read the words of these psalms a few months ago and began to meditate on them, I saw within the journey of my life And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you look in the rearview mirror, things begin to make more sense. After God reveals something to you, shows something, speaks to your soul in a way, you begin to see things differently in your past. And I've come to realize over the the course of my sabbatical, I've spent the last 25 years preaching to others, but I haven't always done a good job of preaching to myself. But the pattern we pick up here in this letter is that when we are cast down and in turmoil, we must preach to ourselves, argue with our souls, demand of ourselves to give ourselves reasons for the way that we feel. Second, that was point number one if you're keeping track. Second, after asking why, we must move on to the what. What? 
What are we going to tell ourselves in response to all these reasons that we have for wrestling with depression and anxiety? And the psalmist helps us with that as well because the very next thing that he says after demanding reasons from himself for the way that he feels is this, hope in God. In the face of all the reasons that I can recount and recite, hope in God. Listen, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can live without a lot of things, but you cannot live without hope. Lewis Smedes said it this way in his book, Keeping Hope Alive. He said, hope is as native to our spirits as thinking is to our brain. Keep hoping and you keep living. Stop hoping and you start dying. That's true of us as individuals. That's true of churches. See, the psalmist understands this because in response to this ongoing state of depression and anxiety, he commands his soul to hope in God. In fact, the Hebrew verb is a bit stronger than that. If you translate it literally, it literally means this. Cause your soul to hope in God. Do something to cause yourself to cling to God, to hold fast to God, to hope in Him. The word hope is translated elsewhere as wait with expectation. So the author saying to his soul, give me all the reasons you feel the way that you do. And then in the face of those, in the face of those, in response to those, he commands himself to wait with expectation, wait with confidence, cause your soul, do something about the way that you feel. Don't just dwell there. Now, this hope that the author speaks of is not a groundless wish. Look at the reason he commands his soul to do this. It's a little preposition. It's the word for. Hope in God for I shall again praise him. Praise is the a confession or declaration of who God is and what he does. So the author is saying this. Listen, this is so good. He's saying, there is a day that's coming in which I will offer praise once again to God because He has acted consistent with His character and according to His pledge and promise. And He has done for me what I could not do for myself. He will deliver me because He is right now my salvation and my God. He says, I can't see it right now. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know how many hills I will have to traverse, how many valleys I will have to cross, how many rivers I will have to ford. I don't know any of that. Don't know when, I don't know where, I don't know how, but I know. And I'm so confident of that in the future that it, I hope now in the present. Listen, one of the things this teaches us is that at some point, each of us has to take ownership for the story we're telling ourselves and preach hope to our souls in the face of all the reasons that we list out for the way that we feel. Listen, we can preach hope to your soul once a week, every Sunday morning. But I guarantee you, from the time that you leave this building to the time that you come back in, your circumstances, the culture in which you live, and I live, 
the news outlets that you watch, the social media feeds that you follow, they will give you a million reasons to despair. So learn to preach hope to yourself. I love the way David Martin Lloyd-Jones says it in his book, Spiritual Depression, as he comments on these psalms. It's beautiful words. He says this, as he talks about Psalm 42 and 43, have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, of last week, of last month, of last year, of the last decade, of your childhood. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. And then he says of the man in Psalm 42, now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Very confusing. He goes on to say, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have to be distressed? You must turn on yourself, rebuke yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man of Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for he is... for." <laughs> For the help of his countenance, I will praise him. Because he's going to act on my behalf. For the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance. So my trust that he's going to act on my behalf so deeply will even change my countenance. Because his face is turned toward me, I know. And he is my God. Listen, so I'm not the only one who thinks you have to learn to preach to yourself or talk to yourself. I think I'm in pretty good company if Lloyd-Jones says it. <laughs> now, where do we get the content to preach this hope to ourselves? Where, where do we get the words to say? I want you to think of it this way. How do we fill our hope tank? And I believe the author helps us with this as well. Listen, we got 15 minutes left. I, this could be a whole series. So I'm going to give you a couple of gallons of fuel this morning. All right? I'm not going to give you everything that the text says. I'm going to give you a couple of gallons. If you want to fill your hope tank to have the content to preach to yourself, one of the first things you've got to learn to do is to remember the works of God. Remember the works of God. Of God. Look at with me at 42.6 for a moment. In that verse, the author says to his soul, uh, 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 sorry, in that verse, the author says his soul is cast down. And then he says, therefore, I remember you. 
In other words, the author says his response to the depression he feels being far removed from where he wants to be, and we'll get to that in a moment, his response to that is to remember. He responds by remembering. He says, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Listen, these places that the author references, it's very interesting. Hermon, Mount Hermon is nearly 220 miles north of Jerusalem, about a six-hour car ride. And it happens to be the only consistent source of fresh water for Israel as it feeds the Jordan River with its annual snow runoff along with the springs on its western and southern slopes. Now, Mount Mazar is in the same mountain range as Hermon, but it's much less impressive. It's like a hill compared to Hermon. And it's, in fact, Mazar means small, insignificant, little. And this is where the author is, at the headwaters of the Jordan River, near Mount Hermon, on Mount Mazar. And so the author says, I'm dwelling in this small, insignificant, on this small, insignificant little hill. But my desire is to once again set foot on Mount Zion in Jerusalem to worship God with the people of God in the place where God's presence dwelt. That's my desire. But I'm so far removed from that in this insignificant location at the springs of the Jordan River with rushing water crying and crashing upon the rocks, deep calling to deep as the waters bellow and rush down the river. The author imagines that he's under the judgment of God and the breakers and waves of God are crashing over him. And yet it's from that place it's from that place that he says, I remember you. Far removed from where he wants to be, with a sense of God's judgment on his life, he says, I remember you and how you've acted in the past, consistent with your character, consistent with your promises, consistent with the pledge that you have made, the covenant that you've entered into with your people, and I believe that you will act again. I believe that you will act again. That's why the psalmist says, God is my salvation, even though he hasn't seen the deliverance yet. Listen, church, some of the greatest fuel for hope in the present is what the Bible would call our Ebenezers from the past. Now, for those not familiar with this word, it's not talking about taking Ebenezer Scrooge, putting him up on your shoulders at Christmas time, walking around the town square. The word Ebenezer comes from 1 Samuel 7. In 1 Samuel 7, the people of Israel are gathered together at Mizpah, and Samuel is judging them, calling out their sin. And they are confronted with the ways they've rebelled against God. Now when the Philistines get wind of the fact that all of Israel is encamped there, they decide to take advantage of this opportunity. Right? Lo and behold, there's all of Israel. Let's go destroy them. And so the Philistines encircle the people of Israel there where they're encamped at Mizpah. And we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 7, in verse 7, it says this, And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. God has been with us thus far. So an Ebenezer is a memorial stone. Think of it this way. It's like a historical marker that designates, that designates what took place, what happened at this place in the past. But it's more than a historical marker because it doesn't just give us facts about what took place there in the past. It fuels our faith for the future. This is how we saw God act here. So we, be, we don't know how he's going to act here, but we believe he will. And so we have faith and we have hope as we move through the present. This is why in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is a line that reads, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. A lot of the modern versions of this try to reword that. I don't think they should. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Do you see the connection there? An Ebenezer is a stone commemorating the fact that we've made it thus far by God's help. That he's held our hand. He's carried us on his backs. Footprints in the sand and all of that. Thus far we've come with God's help. So I lay, I raise this Ebenezer. Hither by your help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure to safely to arrive at home. That's the future. So that one day, I'm going to get home. I'm on this journey, and I've made it this far. God has been with me. One day, I will be home in his presence. And so today, I hope in him. Because I've seen how he acts. I know his character. I'm looking forward to the future. And so I have faith and hope in the present. Now listen. If y'all were a shouting church, some of y'all would be out your chairs by now. <laughs> what are the Ebenezers in your life? What are those places where you look back in the past and you see, thus far, God has helped. God has been with this step. God has gone before and this step. God has been my rear guard in this way. What are those Ebenezers in your life? What are those journal entries, those prayers, those providential events? You've seen God answer, and you've seen Him work. What are those rocks of remembrance? Listen, there are Ebenezers in the life of our church as well. <laughs> I thought about some of those over the last three and a half months and how God has shown up and made things very clear for us sometimes when we were very confused and given us direction and guidance and protected us from ourselves at times. I think about God's provision during COVID and the way that he sustained us. 
I think about how he came before that, right? And he brought this family down from Seattle, right? Who had just happened to be a video editor for, editor for Amazon a year before COVID hits, who just happened to have all the video equipment in his house to turn on a live stream the very next week. And they just happened to be generous enough to open up their home and let us do that for 12 straight weeks, three months, baking us all kinds of good cinnamon rolls as well. That's an Ebenezer. Thus far, God has helped. He came before, provided what we need, even, though, even when we didn't know we needed it. I think about the fact that it wasn't too long ago. That I was raising money for my salary here. And we were hoping, we were hoping to take in $180,000 over the course of annual offerings. And then I look back this week. I wasn't peeking on my sabbatical. I look back this week and I saw that we had received $385,000 in total gifts over the course of 2023. It's an Ebenezer. Thus far, God has helped. There are Ebenezers in the life of our church, Ebenezers in the life of your family, in your own personal life. And they fuel your hope tank. Remember, bring to mind the works of God, how he's acted in the past. But second and finally, because we're just running out of time, find your joy in God. Remember the works of God and find your joy in God. In 43.4, the psalmist calls God his exceeding joy. His exceeding joy. In the Hebrew, the word exceeding is not there. But the author rather uses two separate Hebrew words for joy and rejoicing. And he puts them back to back to emphasize the quality and the extent of the joy he finds in God. It literally, it literally reads this. Then I will go to the altar of God to God my joy joy. Doesn't make any sense in English. It makes a lot of sense in Hebrew. To God my joy, joy. God is His greatest joy, His exceeding joy, His overwhelming joy, His highest joy. It is found in God. That's why at the outset of the Psalm 42, the author says, He thirsts for God as a deer panting for flowing streams of water. God is His joy. Let me see if I can make it plain this way. If we want to fill the tank that fuels our hope, in the middle of turmoil, with another gallon to keep us going. Listen, God has to move from being our vendor to become our treasure. See, there's a difference between those two things. All right, a vendor is someone that you pay for goods and services, right? And so, when we contract with someone, to provide their goods and services, we write them a check, we put it in the mail, check's in the mail, right? We don't say that much more these days, it's more like card is online, on file, right? But we pay them for goods and services. And so our payment then entitles us to certain things, experiences, right? 
or services. That's what a vendor is. And so much of the American West has approached God as their vendor. So if I pay in by my obedience and my service and my giving and my attendance at, at church and going to Bible studies and helping little old ladies across the street, being a good, moral, upstanding individual, I'm paying. And God then has goods and services that he is required to return to me. That's how much of the American West has approached God. That's not how the author approaches God here. Because you notice, in the midst of his turmoil and in the midst of his downcast soul, he doesn't say, right? He's not complaining to God. He's not, he's crying out to God. He feels forgotten by God, perhaps rejected by God. But what does he say in the midst of that? He doesn't say, God, you owe me. He says, God, I thirst for you. I thirst for you. Because you're my treasure. It's like Jesus says in the Gospels when he tells the parable, he says, there was a man who came to discover this treasure hidden in a field. And what did he do? He went at home and he sold everything that he had to acquire the proceeds that he needed to go and buy the field to acquire the treasure. That's what, this, that's what the man of Psalm 42 and 43 does. He's not saying, God, you owe me, but God, you are my joy, exceeding, abundant, abounding, overflowing, and I thirst for you. I thirst for you because you are my treasure. I wonder how thirsty we are this morning. I know the answer to that question because it's the common human experience. All of us are thirsty for something. We're all thirsty for something. Listen, as I read this text over the course of the last three and a half months, one of the things that God began to say to me personally was, the fe- was there's an absence of this thirst for him in my life. I thirsted for a lot of things. Thirst for accomplishments and achievements right, to prove that I'm not the loser that I think that I am that myself is telling me that I am. Thirst for accomplishments and for achievements. Ministry success. Can thirst for possessions and positions and opportunities. Can thirst for, we can thirst for all kinds of things in life. And we do thirst for all kinds of things in life. But I began to get this sense on my soul that I did not thirst for God the way the author of the psalm describes it. Think about it. You have this deer, and, and, and the picture is in the, in the wilderness, in the midst of a drought, who is panting for streams of fresh, flowing water, not for stagnant pools. There's a difference between those two things. So oftentimes, when we try to quench our thirst, we go to stagnant pools or broken cisterns, is how Jeremiah describes them in Jeremiah chapter 2. 
that we exchange the living God, the fountain of life, for these broken cisterns, and we keep putting our mouths under it, expecting it to drip water in. And it, it just runs dry over and over and over again. Do you know why we live so parched and so thirsty whenever we're drinking from broken cisterns? The reason is this, is because when we get a taste of the water from that cistern, it quenches our thirst, but it dries up so quickly that we have to go back for more because it's never fully satisfying. But the author of the psalm says, I thirst for God. And the reason he thirsts for God is because when he gets a taste of God, when he gets a taste of God, he goes back for more, not because it's unsatisfying and he needs to fill up on more and more and more, but because it is satisfying and he craves it more and more and more. He's thirsting for God. And so because I felt that lacking, I just began to pray. God, would, if, if it is true, if it is true, that I could thirst for you in the same way that a wild animal living in a drought-stricken land in the middle of the summer thirsts for a stream of flowing water. If I can thirst for you like that, God, would you make it true in my life? Would you make it true? Would you make me dissatisfied with every stagnant pool and every broken cistern? And church, I would ask you, what would it might happen in your life? What might happen in our church if every Sunday morning, as you prepared for worship, you prayed that God would give you such an intense thirst for himself? And then that it would be met as the saints gather in throngs and processions with liars to praise our God and to sit under his word, to sing with the saints. And there'd be such a sweet spirit because we would be thirsting for God. Not thirsting for a building. Not thirsting for exponential growth numerically, but thirsting for God. I want to tell you something. There is something beautiful and attractive about that when it's at the center of a church. I got more, but we're done. Listen, if you're going to fill that hope tank, you've, we must learn to preach to ourselves. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing together. Preach to yourself in your midst of, midst of turmoil. Hope in God. And arm yourself with the fuel to do that by looking back on his past actions on your behalf. And listen, there is no greater place to look than the cross. Where has God most fully acted on your behalf to do for you what you could not do for yourself? It was through the sending of his son to be our Savior, to
to bear the weight of our sin, to be the man of sorrows that we sang about earlier. Stricken with grief. I imagine this psalm could have been on the lips of Jesus himself. Why have you forgotten me? Remember the works of God. Find your joy in God. Make Him your joy, joy. In 2024. I'm going to pray for us that we would, and then we're going to sing a song. It's a song we know. And it's a song that declares truth to our souls that Jesus is better than wealth. He's better than health. He's better than achievements. He's better than financial security. He's better than anything that we might thirst after in life. And as we sing that song, I just want to invite you to speak truth to your own soul and to the souls of those who are around you. Do a little preaching this morning as we sing together. Let me pray. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.